You wake up to a text message from your brother who is clearly mad at you that you didn't call him back yesterday, and now it's going to be a whole thing. And then you get in the shower, and as the water's hitting your face, and you're kind of stretching around and kind of waking up, you realize that you did something to your leg. Like, and you wish you could say it was something done while working out, but it must have been while you were sleeping. <laughs> on your way to work, you get cut off by a distracted driver who's more focused on liking some pic on Instagram than driving safely down I-10. When you get to the office, you settle into your cubicle, and you can hear a crunching noise coming from about two cubicles away, which instantly alerts you to the fact that it's Wednesday, because on Wednesday, the most annoying coworker in the office always eats chips in the morning. Later that day, you're sitting with your team, and you're passive-aggressively reminded that your last review wasn't so stellar, and you're already bracing yourself for the fact that you're not going to quite get the bonus you thought you were this year. And then you get another text from your brother. He's still mad about you not calling him back, but now he's shifted his attention to your father, and he's reminding you that dad is going in to get his test results tomorrow, and everyone seems to think that the cancer is back. Later that night, you are FaceTiming with your daughter, who's doing some work on the other side of the planet, and while you're really proud of her, she is desperately lonely, and you are worried about her. At dinner, you're sitting across the table from your spouse, who you love, but it's a quiet dinner because you are mad that he didn't make any Valentine's Day plans. Now, you told him not to make the Valentine's Day plans. <laughs> but he should know by now that you really do want him to make Valentine's Day plans. You just don't want to be the kind of wife who wants Valentine's Day plans. This is easy. That night as you're laying in bed, you are wide awake because your anxiety is worst in the evening. And you are thinking about everything. You're thinking about getting your taxes done and the fact that you're probably going to owe again. You're thinking about tuition for the kids and the fact that it's going up. You're still worried about your daughter. You wonder if there's anything you can do to help her from the other side of the globe. And then you think about your dad and if and when you might lose him. You grab your phone and you set an alarm for 5 a.m. because you're determined tomorrow morning you're going to get up and run. You've been really mad at yourself that you haven't been working out lately. But you also set an alarm for 6 a.m. because you're probably going to sleep to that 5 a.m. alarm. And just as you put the phone down, getting ready to finally go to sleep, you hear that noise. It's another text. And it's from your brother. You still haven't called him back. Any of this sound familiar to you? Sounds familiar to me. Today we're concluding a teaching series that we've been in for the last month or so called Practicing Christian. We've been looking at the, the habits and the attitudes that are essential to a life of faithfully following Jesus, but also along the way continuing to grow into the person and likeness of Jesus. And today we conclude by talking about something that is, is very practical, but also very difficult. The reality that life as a practicing Christian means embracing everyday trials. Believing that every day is full of little pains that you can either fight against or embrace with a heart of faith. In fact, right out of the gate, I'm going to have you write something down. If you have your notebook that we've been using throughout the series, take it out, write this down. Or if you don't have a notebook, just grab a pen and like write on the, write on the jeans of the person next to you. Whatever you got to do to jot this down so you remember it. Listen to these words. A practicing Christian embraces everyday trials understanding them in light of his or her faith. A practicing Christian embraces everyday trials, understanding them in light of his or her faith. That's worth remembering. Look, life is a gift. Life is great. 
Life is amazing. Life should be lived full throttle, holding onto it with both hands, and you should soak all the enjoyment out of it you possibly can. That is true. But life is also painful. Life is full of daily struggles. Life is full of suffering. Big suffering and little suffering. Life is not easy. And anyone who's lived for more than five minutes can tell you that. Now that truth, that life is a gift, but life is also very painful and very hard, has led some humans in the course of history to have a very dim and depressing view of human existence. For example, uh, David Gerald is a famous science fiction writer here in the U.S., and he, he once said this about the human existence. He said, life is hard, then you die. That's delightful. Then they throw dirt in your face. Then the worms eat you. Be grateful it happens in that order. Now, what he's saying is depressing, but it's not false. I mean, it is true. Life is hard, and then you do die. I mean, Jesus says as much. The Old Testament says it. The New Testament says it. Life is gift, but life is painful. In fact, in the text I want to focus on today, James, the brother of Jesus, writing to a group of persecuted Christians, he says much the same thing. James is writing to a group of Christians who are persecuted for their faith, but they're also just living a difficult life in the first century. Life in the first century was, was difficult beyond belief to our modern minds for absolutely everybody. So not only were these Christians being persecuted for their faith, but they're also living in a world where, where half of all children born to families dies before the age of one. These are people who know pain and tragedy and trial. And listen to what James says to them. This is what James says. James chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes of the dispersion. That was the label put on the Christians who, because of persecution, they scattered around the known world. They called themselves the dispersion. He says, Greetings! Count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. James gets right to it. Greetings! Hello! Life is difficult. Let's talk about it. Notice he doesn't say, If trials come. What does he say? when trials come. He also says trials of various kinds. The difficulties you go through are going to be of different levels of intensity, of different shades and different colors. Now think of a trial like this. It is any kind of unmet expectation or unrealized desire that makes life more difficult. An unmet expectation that makes life more painful or more difficult. And again, these come in both big and small varieties. You expect, you desire the commute to work to be easy. It is not. It's painful. That's a trial. You expect, you desire your spouse to be faithful. He is not. That is painful. That's a trial. You want your middle schooler to be overflowing with lightness and love and obedience and joy. They are not that is painful. It's a trial. You expect, you desire your depression to go away. But it doesn't. And that is painful. That's a trial. Now, it seems so basic, but, but part of life as a practicing Christian is admitting that there are pains. Admitting openly that life is painful. Now, now, for some of us, just, just recognizing and stating and admitting that, that in and of itself is a breakthrough for some of us. 
Because some of you have been living in a world where you believe that to admit the pains and the problems of life is somehow to be an ungrateful complainer. And so you just have this stiff upper lip and you never admit to yourself or others that there is pain, that there is hardship, that life is anything other than ideal because you don't want to be a complainer. Now to admit that life is painful doesn't make you a bad person. It just makes you honest. And maybe some of you need to hear this. It's okay to tell other people that life is not okay. You're allowed. Now, this is also a breakthrough to admit uh, for those of you who grew up believing that life with Jesus was supposed to be easier than life without him. For those of you who have been taught that, that people who have faith in Jesus, they somehow should go on from victory to victory to victory and they should avoid some of the, some of the more harmful, painful problems of life. And, and I, don't know, I don't know who sold you that lie, but it is in fact a lie. And you've been hesitant to admit when life isn't great because somehow you've interpreted it as admitting weakness in your faith. But that's not the case. Jesus does not promise that your life will have less pain. He does promise that you will have great hope in the midst of great pain. That's his promise. He does not say you'll avoid difficulty. He tells you that he has overcome difficulty for you and gives this promise of ultimate victory to you. That's what he says. Which, which begs us to ask the question, well, what is the ultimate hope that we have in the midst of our trials? And very quickly, it's this. It's this hope that no matter what you face, you will always and forever be forgiven. It's the hope that no matter what comes against you, no matter how scary and powerful it is, Jesus is more powerful. Look at what he's overcome. He, he rose from the dead. There's this empty tomb. So he's greater than whatever great thing is scaring you. There's this promise that even if the trial and the difficulty you're facing completely crushes you, say it even kills you, that, that Jesus promises this resurrection and this ultimate victory in the very end for you. Those are the things you hold in your hand as the great hope of your heart. That is your great possession that you hold to in times of trial. But that's not all. James continues, and listen to what he says to these persecuted Christians. He says, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, here comes the important part, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness, the ability to hold on and keep going, have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In those two verses, there are four words that stick out to me. Testing, perfect, complete, and produce. Testing, perfect, complete, and produce. What these verses are meant to say to you is that God is using trials to do something in you and to you. You see this throughout the scriptures. Practicing Christians are called to believe that God uses trials like a tool to transform us. He uses every struggle to mold us and to shape us. You may say, well, that's not fair. Why does God have to work that way? And I'll say this, everything in God's world works that way. How do, how do you think character is built? 
How else is faith supposed to be strengthened? When else is your hope going to be experienced and expressed? How do you think your, your appreciation for the grace and the goodness and the mercy of God is supposed to deepen and be enriched? Is it through times of ease? No. It's through resistance. It's through struggle. Last week I was chatting with my daughter after she got home from track practice. It was her first track practice. She's not run a day in her life. Now she's on the track team. Go figure. And she came home and she's bemoaning the fact that like every muscle in her body hurts. She's like, muscles I didn't even know I have, they all hurt. I don't think I'm made out for this. I think I'm doing it wrong. I'm like, no, that's kind of how it works. That's probably a sign that you're, you're doing it right. This is how muscles and strengths and skills are developed. You get broken down and then you get built back up. And that's what God is doing in your trials. That's what a person of faith believes. He uses trials like a tool to transform, and he's transforming you. Do you know what faith is? One of the ways in which you could define faith is like this. Faith is, faith is seeing things from God's perspective and choosing to believe what he sees. Faith is seeing your own life from God's perspective as revealed to you in his word and choosing to believe what he says about you. But that's what God's word is. It's God's perspective about our world and about you. And then you choose to believe his perspective about you rather than your own dim, unenlightened human perspective. And what's happening in the book of James and then throughout the scriptures is James is trying to help you see your own daily pains and struggles, the huge ones, the tiny ones, from God's perspective. And here is God's perspective. You and I, we can't help but be overwhelmed when we endure struggles. But God is not so concerned about what you're enduring. God is concerned by who, about who you're becoming. We focus on what happens to us each day. God is focused on what's happening in us each day. We see our trials for what they are on the surface, an annoying coworker or a horrible diagnosis. God sees our trials for what they can accomplish in us long term. You see the difference? We focus on what's happening to us. God focuses on what he's doing in us and through us with this trial. So, so a practicing Christian has a perspective like this when daily trials come. They, they, they admit that it's awful. They, they openly say, this is not ideal. I don't like this. This stinks. They, they admit that it's not what they want. But then they also say something like this. I believe that God is using this for my good. He uses our trials like a tool to transform. So, so then how does this work practically? Like when you're stuck in traffic on I-10 or when you're up all night worried about how your dad's going to do as his health deteriorates. And this is where James's first words come in. And it's easy to write off these words, okay? But, but these words are actually James's instruction to trial-ridden, burdened people. This is, this is what he says, how he says we should deal with it. He says this right out of the gate. It's four words. They're in orange. Why don't we read these words together? Count it all joy. That's his advice. That's his instruction. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know. Count it all joy. Now, here's the truth. When you face trials and struggles, you're going to count it as something. 
You always do. The word that is translated as count here is a word that James uses that means to categorize, to ascribe, or to assign, to choose to see this thing from a certain perspective. You could say uh, that James is saying, when you meet trials of various kinds, you have a choice of different categories you could put this difficulty in. And you, follower of Christ, you put it in the joy category, which seems counterintuitive. But when you face a trial, put it in the category of joy. Now, now when trials come, you may be the kind of person who counts it all as judgment. Oh, God's mad at me. Look how life is turning out. Must have done something wrong. Others of you, when you, when you face a trial, you, you count it all as failure. Man, if I had my life together, I wouldn't be facing problems like this. You, you want a hint into my own self-talk? I tend to be that one. Or maybe you're a person that when, when you face trials, you count it all as personal. The world is against you. The world has once again offended you. And you instantly and easily, you put on the victim hat and you play that part. When trials come, you will count it as something. What do you tend to count it as? James says, you should count it as joy. Count it as joy. Now, I'm tempted to take James's advice and think that he's telling me that when something bad happens, I should just be fake and pretend I have joy over it. That in the face of pain and struggle, the Christian response is to slap on a smile and a phony grin and say, I got the joy of the Lord. But I don't think that's what he's talking about. But, but it makes me think of the fact that, that Lisa and I, we just finished watching the Netflix show Cheer. Have you seen it? It, it, was, it was fascinating if you've not seen it. I highly recommend it. It's these competitive cheerleaders in a small town in Texas. And, and they are like some of the best athletes you will ever see. Not since the Egyptians have people worked so hard to build a pyramid, let me tell you. <laughs> they are beasts. But, but the craziest thing is their ability, their ability after like rolling an ankle or falling from the top of the pyramid as they're trying to figure it out and landing on their face, their ability to immediately jump up, put on a fake smile, and just keep clapping. It is admirable. It really is. You know that they're dying on the inside, but on the outside, it's just big smiles and spray tans. That is not what James is talking about. That's admirable in competitive cheerleading. That is not the life of a practicing Christian. Counting it all joy is not putting on a fake smile and pretending we're fine. We've got enough of that in this world. Joy is deeper than happiness. Happiness is, is an emotion on the surface that can easily be faked. But joy is, is something deeper. Happiness is an emotion. Joy is a possession deep in your heart. It's something that you hold to deep in your heart that gives you an ultimate sense that things are going to be okay. And for Christians, we have a very specific object that we hold to in our hearts that serves as our joy. We have a great possession deep in our hearts that shapes how we see everything else. What is your joy? What is your great possession? 
Your joy, your great possession is the truth that you are forgiven by God, that you, you are loved by God, that you are chosen by God. You're being worked on right now by God. And it's all completed, not because you deserve it, but through the life, death, and resurrection of the Son of God. And it cannot ever be taken from you or stolen from you. That is your possession that you hold too deep in your heart. And that is your great joy. Here's what I believe. I believe that when trials come, be it the annoying thing or the big thing, you can't control how you feel about it instinctively. Like when something bad happens, you're just going to feel what you're going to feel. Anger, hatred, annoyance, whatever. But here's where you do have a choice. How you act next. You can't choose how you feel, but you can choose what you do next. And a practicing Christian makes the conscious decision to interpret their obstacles through the prism of God's promises, through the lens of God's love. You choose to let what's guaranteed for you in Christ shape how you will perceive the moment you're in. You feel what you're going to feel. This is awful. I hate it. I wish it wouldn't happen. You feel that. You admit that. And then you make a conscious decision to interpret it through the lens of what is guaranteed for you in Christ. Which will lead you to say things like this. I know it's bad, but it's not a punishment. I know I've failed, but I'm not a failure. I know I've made a mistake, but I'm forgiven. I know it's terminal, but it's not the end. I know it's tough, but I'm being transformed. And when you choose to say those things in the face of an obstacle, that is when you are counting it joy. I may, I made a mistake, but I'm forgiven. I'm counting it as joy. I may have cancer and it's not looking good, but I will rise on the last day. I'm counting it as joy. I'm annoyed as all get out at work, but God will give me strength to get through it. Yes, he will. I'm counting it as joy. That's what it means. I saw a great example of this. Late last year, towards the end of the summer, early fall, can't remember exactly when it was, uh, but I saw this interview that took place between, between Stephen Colbert, the late night comedian, and Anderson Cooper. And, and, and these, are, these are two folks who, who've been through a lot of trial, a lot of struggle in their personal lives, if you happen to know. So, so Anderson Cooper, when he was young, he lost his dad, and then he lost his older brother, who he really loved. And then just before he sat down to interview Stephen Colbert, his mom, who he was very close to, Gloria Vanderbilt, she passed away. And then Stephen Colbert, when he was 10 years old, his dad and his two brothers both died in a plane crash. And he was really left to love and care for his mom. These are two men who know capital T trials. And so they they sit down for this interview. And as they start, Anderson Cooper asks Stephen Colbert about something Stephen Colbert had recently said. He he says this, You, Stephen, you, you once said that punishments can be gifts of God. In fact, you phrased it like this. What punishments or trials are not gifts of God? And even as he asked the question, Anderson Cooper began to tear up. And he continued. He looked at Stephen Colbert and he said, Do you really believe that? That punishments or trials can be perceived as gifts? And Stephen Colbert leaned in and with with the warmest, most genuine smile on his face, he looked at his friend Anderson and he said, Yes, yes, I do believe that. Stephen Colbert is a a practicing Catholic, and he went on to say to Anderson Cooper, he said, it's a gift to exist. And with existence, with being human, comes suffering. You can't escape it. 
And then he said these words, I want to be the most human I can be. And that involves acknowledging and ultimately being grateful for the things that I wish did not happen because they gave me a gift. The most touching part to me was when Colbert very nearly shared the gospel with Anderson Cooper on CNN when he said this, that's the great gift of the sacrifice of Christ. God suffers too, and you're really not alone. God does it too. Colbert's point was this, you can't fully appreciate the gift of life unless you begin to appreciate that there are gifts in every aspect of life, even and including the daily trials, the big ones, the little ones. And if you don't believe that that's possible, then look to the cross of Jesus Christ, where through incredible pain and suffering, God brought about the greatest good, your forgiveness and mine and our collective salvation. That's what he's saying. Now, now when Stephen Colbert is saying this to Anderson Cooper, what is he doing? What is he doing? He's taking his pains and his struggles and his great tragedies of life, and he's counting it all as what? Joy. I wish it hadn't happened, but God was at work in it. And God is still good in and through and despite it. Because I'm looking at it through the lens of what Jesus Christ has done for me, and I'm not putting it in the I've been wronged, or I'm perpetually a victim, or I must have done something bad, or I'm a failure category. No, I'm putting it in the joy category. Even this is evidence of just how great and good God is. We're ending this series with this conversation because in so many ways, this is, this is the most difficult part. Everything else we've talked about, prayer, scripture, community, these are things that you can choose to do. But, but with daily trials, they choose you. They choose you, and then you've just got to respond. And my prayer for you fellow Christian, is that as they hit you, you would, you would lay hold of them. You would admit, this is awful. I don't like it. This is painful. This is annoying. Admit it. It's okay to say it. But then you would then choose to see it through the lens of everything that's guaranteed for you in Christ. That you would make that choice. And it's not easy. It's not easy to do. But you do get better at it over time. Like practicing the pyramid on cheer. Only in God's family, you're allowed to cry. It's okay. And over the course of time, you get better at something, counting it joy, that other people find miraculous. Facing trials with hope and faith and peace.